Uh, our passage this morning will be 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we continue this study of uh, the stewardship of life. 1 Timothy 6. Uh, here, here are the scripture. I'm going to start in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all and of Jesus Christ who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now you take the word of God and make application to our lives, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the stewardship of life is an invitation to joy and significance and hope and purpose. It's an invitation to understand that we're made in the image of God and that if we're in Christ, we're His and we've been bought with the price. We're to glorify God with our body. 1 Corinthians 6 says it's an invitation to realize that God wants to use you to advance His kingdom and to take different aspects of this culture and the cultures of the world under the umbrella of the Lordship of Christ. Uh, it's an invitation to wholeness and to harmony and to radiance and to purpose. So all that for us. Conversely, there are people who live with the mantra that says you can never know, there's no way to determine truth, there's no way to know where you're going when you die, there's no purpose in living. I mentioned a tombstone that was inscribed before Christ that says, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. And we, we don't live that way. We live with purpose. If we understand the reality of being called unto the Lord. We Paul says, I charge you. Woody Allen is always good for a quote. He said this two years ago. Woody Allen, the producer and the actor uh, who is very honest, he said, he said this, um, he said, I, I do feel that life is a grim, painful, nightmarish, meaningless existence. And the only way you can be happy is if you tell yourself some lies and deceive yourself nightmarish, painful, no purpose, no dignity, existence. Conversely, we say life is filled with joy and filled with passion, filled with purpose. And a, a steward is someone who has been given gifts and who will give an account for the way he lives his life, the way he lives her life. The way he lives her life. So that, that's what a, a steward is. So we talk about the stewardship of life. Now listen to this. The stewardship of life admits two degrees. As you understand and as you respond to and walk in the fullness and the liberty of Christ, it admits two degrees of blessedness and understanding. There's a quote in the bulletin from a guy named John Owen, my, one of my favorite guys, my favorite Puritan, and this is what he says. Though, though a little weak faith... Where steadfastness is lacking will carry a man to Christ in heaven. It will never carry him comfortably or pleasantly there. He says, you know, faith in Christ will get you to heaven. But if you're not steadfast and you're not living as a steward, 
in obedience to the things of the Lord, then it won't be the blessing it should have been later, he says. The least true faith will do its work, but not so sweetly as strong faith. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about a man who builds on the foundation of Christ using gold, silver, and costly stones, another using wood, hay, and straw, and he says the day will bring it to light. The man who built with gold, silver, and costly stones lives as a steward of the grace of Christ. The man using wood, hay, and straw, he says, will escape as if through the flames. I want you to go strong. One of the passages I think about frequently is, is in Philippians 1, where Paul is in prison in Rome, and he says this, to die and to go to the Lord will be better by far. He says, but it is more necessary for your sakes that I remain, for your progress and your joy in the faith. So if you're a community group leader, or a Sunday Bible study leader, a small group leader, if you have any type of position of leadership in your home, if, if you're an encourager, one of the things we should say is, I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to encourage you for your progress and joy in the faith. Be a good steward. Because that's why Paul says in chapter 6, verse 12, in this passage we're studying, he says, you know, fight the good fight of the faith. Good means the beautiful, the handsome, the useful. Fight the beautiful, the handsome, the useful fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good, the beautiful, the handsome confession in the presence of many witnesses. Says Timothy, flee from these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and, and gentleness. Fight the good fight, brothers and sisters. So my, my thesis this morning is this, that to be involved in the stewardship of life, we need staying power. And staying power is given to us by the Holy Spirit as we progressively understand, grapple with, know, and delight in the character of God in His triune glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this book of 1 Timothy, pa Paul We'll talk about an issue, and then he'll break out into spontaneous praise. For example, in chapter 1, he's talking about the grace of God that saved him the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, he says. This is a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief or the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just stops and he goes into praise. He says, now to the king of kings, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's overwhelmed by the goodness of the Lord in saving him. And then chapter 3 talks about the centrality and the importance of the local church. The church being the, the, the pillar and the foundation of truth. And he says this, I'm writing this so you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he either writes to him or quotes to him. He says this, Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In the text we're looking at today, Paul's gone through 
an arduous teaching session in chapter 6, and he says, Timothy, you're in a tough city. It's an immoral city. You're surrounded by false teachers, and one of the things these false teachers do is they just teach lies. They're pugnacious. They fight. They're mean-spirited. And then they go around teaching people that if you truly know the God who is, you'll be wealthy. And Paul says, that's a lie. He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. He says that, that money is, the, is a root of all kinds of evil, and many people in their craving desire to have more and more and more have wandered from the faith, and they've impelled themselves with many pangs. He says, but Timothy, you, you flee these things and and you pursue these things, and you fight the good fight. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And he says, understand the second coming of Christ. And then, and then he, he says this. He will display this at the proper time. Now he, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In other words, he says, behold the glorious character of our triune God. So my thesis, if I'm going to have staying power in the stewardship of life, I must understand progressively the character of God. I've got to think biblical thoughts and glory in the revelation of Christ. So, two comments, and then a few statements from the passage. Number one, if I'm to do this well, I must be exceedingly careful in how I hear and I receive and I apply the Word of God. I've got to be exceedingly careful. In a well-known parable, maybe his most well-known parable, Jesus talks about the parable of the sower, and he says there, there are four types of people, four types of responses to the word. He says the seed is broadcast. The, the word is preached and communicated. And some people, the devil comes and snatches it away. And some, sometimes the word appears to be received with joy, and a plant springs up overnight, but it has no root, and it dies. And, and the fourth, we'll skip the third for now. The fourth is some people hear the word with a, a good and an honest heart. They hear it well. They receive it. They apply it. And, and they produce a crop that is honoring unto the Lord. But the third type, he says this. In Luke chapter 8, verse 14. And as for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Choked. What's interesting about this passage? He doesn't say that it's choked because of sin, because of whatever. It's choked by things that aren't bad in and of themselves. Cares. We all have cares, riches, pleasures. These things are not bad. But if they're not very carefully watched over, they choke the word, making it fruitful. Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke had a wonderful statement about that. He said this, What fell among the thorns stands for people 
who have the, the potential for spiritual advance, but life will hold just so much. And these people fill their lives with so many things that there is no room for spiritual fruit. See, I want you to hear me. I've got to be exceedingly careful in how I hear and receive the word. And I've got to continuously bring myself before the Lord and say, Lord, are good things hindering me from following you fully? C.S. Lewis wrote such a statement in the bulletin. says that when you consider the staggering nature of the gospel promises and the reward that is offered, our desires are not too strong. They are weak. So we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition like a, a child making mud pies in the slum when a free offer at sea is offered to him. So, so they both say the same thing, basically. There's only so much room in your life. And if the life, your life is filled with good things that take away from the pursuit of Christ, good things, you choke the word. Lewis says we're far too easily pleased. It's as if we're satisfied with a, a picture of a pond, which is lovely, or our backyard, which is lovely, when this is what the Lord wants to give us, a vision of the Himalayas. And so I look at this and I say to you, I say to me, be exceedingly careful how you read, study, receive, and apply the Bible. It is God's Word. And I, I really can't tell you if you've got too much in your life. I can say you need to honor the Lord in the Sabbath. You need to honor Him with your money. You need to discover the rhythms of grace. I, need, I can say all those things. But, but there are people here who are well-meaning, who are diligent, who are fine, who say, I'm not where I used to be. And, and if you've got honest, you say, it's because my life is choked with too much stuff. I'm not involved in horrendous sin, but my life is choked. And I, I need to have room and leisure to seek God. Be exceedingly careful. No one can tell you, unless it's obviously unbiblical, if your stuff is choking you. You've got to be honest before the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit as you study the Bible and you walk in community with other people who can speak into your life. It just chokes. See, I, I want joy for you. I want you to be used to God and, and to go for it. So the, the stewardship of life, we must be exceedingly careful because we realize, we realize a great day is coming that Paul speaks of in chapter 6, verse 14 when he says, you know, keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. We understand the history is going someplace and, and I stand before God as, as a steward of his grace. So there's urgency, not lethargy. There's a sense of, of, of calling. We don't we don't just float. I was reading an interview with a well-known actor recently, and it was, uh, he was asked, what, what about faith? He said, I was raised in a Christian tradition, and he was. He says, but I, I walked away from that. He said, I, when it comes to God, I don't know. There may be a God. I guess I will find out when I die. Now listen, the Bible says that's too late. That's too late. That you die once, and then comes the judgment, the Bible says. There's no transmigration of the soul, reincarnation. Once, and that's it. So, so there's urgency here. 
there's urgency. We live with the sense of urgency. We live with the sense of urgency because there's a day coming. Now, next week at our missions conference, there'll be many women and men here who minister primarily to uh, people where Muslim is the majority of religion by far and away. And recently we've been hearing about that's the flag of ISIS. And reading about ISIS, there's a wonderful article in the Atlantic Monthly that you need to Google and read. It came out this week. But, but ISIS, uh, uh, they consider the jihadists to be apostate. They weren't strong enough. The people who have the ISIS mentality believe in the caliphate, which means a supreme leader or ruler, and, and, and they believe there's no geographical barriers, and so they're, they, they're into land conquering. And if they conquer a land, then they are compelled to introduce what we would consider to be very obtuse uh, Sharia law. And in the Sharia law they would bring, it involves the beheadings of apostates. It involves crucifixion. It involves taking the women, uh, the wives and the daughters and the sons of non-Muslims and making them the property of Muslim people. It is a horrific system. And so what you're seeing is part of what they're about. It is conversion at the point of a sword by belittling and castigating and murdering people. As I thought about that, I, th I thought about, about this verse when it comes to the kingdom. In 2 Peter 3, Peter's writing a church that's being persecuted. And he says, you look forward to the day of the Lord, day of God, and you speed or hasten its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But he says that, that, that by righteous, holy, living obedience and spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, we can hasten the day of the Lord. The day is coming. But the kingdom of God is advanced not at the tip of a sword, but by the preaching of the word. Not by imprisoning and enslaving people, but by caring for the least of these and establishing schools and orphanages and hospitals and taking the gospel to people that have never heard and sending Bible translators to translate the word of God into their language so they can read and hear and understand the Bible. So we, we have an urgency about the kingdom that's based upon the strong, glorious reality of Christ. So the second point is this. Um, if we are to be stewards of life, we've got to continually disentangle our souls by a worship that delights in the character of God. We've got to have biblical good thoughts about God, glorious thoughts. A man named John Owen, again, my favorite Puritan, said the following. He died in 1688. Just listen to this. This is a Puritan. This is a guy that wrote 16 volumes it's collected works, small print, big words, 16 volumes. No spell check, no, I mean, just amazing. I just go, how'd he do that? And I always say, it helps to be a genius. So, we're, most of us cannot identify, okay? This is what Owen says. If we settle for mere speculations and mental notions about Christ as doctrine, he loved doctrine. We shall find no transforming power communicated to us. But when, under the conduct of spiritual light, our affections do cleave unto Christ, 
with full purpose of heart, our minds are filled up with thoughts and delight in Him, then changing character will proceed from Him to purify us and increase our holiness and strengthen our graces and to fill us with something, sometimes with joy, unspeakable than full of glory, according to 1 Peter. So so Owen is saying that if we just settle for doctrinal truths about Christ, which we must have, and we don't delight and cleave and cry out to him, oh God, give me more of yourself in the person of Jesus. Teach me more about yourself. If, if If we just, if we don't continually disentangle our souls, then we're not being the people God has called us to be. Now, I just ask you, I ask myself, are you pressing to know Christ? For example, Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul in Ephesians 1 goes through this long statement, glorious statement about our calling in Christ. We're eternally loved by God. We're adopted into his family. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's just glorious. And then he has this prayer for the church at Ephesus. And he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he said, wait, 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 time out, Paul. You just said that I am chosen in Christ, I'm adopted in Christ, I am loved in the beloved, that I am sealed by the Holy Spirit, and now you pray that the eyes of my heart may be continually enlightened. What, what is he saying? He's saying that we need to continually press into knowing Christ. And, and even though we're secure in him and our righteousness is fixed in him, we say, God, by your grace, show me the beauty of Jesus. Show me the hope. Show me my riches. Don't be satisfied. In chapter 3, he has another prayer. He says, I pray you'll be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and you may know the, the, the width and the length and the height and the breadth of the love of God that's found only in Jesus. And he says, you press into knowing him. Cry out to God, God, have mercy on my soul. Let me see the, the beauty of Christ. Luke chapter 9, well-known passage, the transfiguration of Christ. He gave some hard teaching, the first part of Luke. Luke 9.23 says, or 9.27 says, that eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. So Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what. He said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. This is so powerful. 
Christ is transfigured, Moses and Elijah came down, and they're talking about that which would be accomplished at Jerusalem, his betrayal, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And Moses and Elijah are saying the whole salvific system from the Old Testament to now and into the future hinges upon what happens in Jerusalem when the Son of God, Messiah King, dies on the cross for our sins. And Peter's overcome. Somebody's got to say something. So Peter volunteers, let's make three tents, have three tents. Moses, he lied to Jesus, and let's just do our thing here. And then a cloud comes down, and the Lord said, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. And the cloud goes, and it's just Jesus. That's the point. It's just Christ. The prophets and the law, glorious, but they point to Christ. The traditions are glorious, but they point to Christ. And if, if I'm to go in deep into the school of Christ, I must continuously point to him as Jesus alone. There's a little book, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle. Very quickly, Aslan is the great lion of Narnia who represents Christ in these little books. And in this last book, it been centuries and centuries they haven't seen Aslan a wicked, evil, deceitful team come in and they deceive people saying, we represent Aslan. They did not. That the true king of Narnia, Tyrion, is forlorn. He says, I can't believe they represent Aslan. I don't believe they represent Aslan. They were imprisoning people, putting them to death, taking the talking animals and making them subjected to all types of torture. And this is what happens. Tyrion is talking to his dear friend who is a talking unicorn. And he says this, it is time to go forward even unto our death and to fight the forces of evil. And then the king said, do you think I care if Aslan dooms me to death? That would be nothing, nothing at all. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for. It is as if the sun rose one day and were only a black spot. And the unicorn said, I know. Or as if you drank water and it were dry water. You're in the right, sire. This is the end of all things. Let us go and give ourselves up. And the king said, there's no need for both of us to die. And the unicorn said, if ever we loved one another, let me go with you now. If you are dead, and if Aslan is not the Aslan I long for, what life is left for me? I read this and I think, you know, thanks be to God that the Christ who is and who reigns and who's coming again is one million times greater by far than the most holy thought I have ever had about him. He is more glorious than I can ever imagine. He is greater, more kind, more powerful than anything I've ever imagined. And so that, that's why, you see, staying power, church, staying power comes as we progressively know the character of God. And so I'm going to go to the text, make a few comments. I'll do this pretty quickly. So Paul breaks out into this praise, and he says, Behold the greatness of the king who is coming. He said he's the blessed and only sovereign. The blessed and only sovereign. Blessed means the one who dispenses and gives gifts. He's, he's the blessed and the only sovereign. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He alone is immortal. 
He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion forever. So it says, blessed only sovereign, the dispenser of gifts. Now there's a, there's a man named Jonathan Edwards. I love him too. Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, John Calvin, John Bunyan. John is a good name. If your name is John, you have good company. I've never read a bunch of dudes named Buster who wrote good stuff. So <laughs> go with John, not Buster, okay? But this, Jonathan Edwards died 1758. And if, if he only wrote one sermon... I would bless God forever because of the Christian pilgrim. One sermon. He wrote much more than that. But, but this is what he says in the Christian pilgrim, and it is so good. He says, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here fathers and mothers and husbands or wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. Edward says, friendships are glorious. Wives, glorious. Children, glorious. The comp- These are glorious. These are but beams, but God is the sun. Thank God for the beams. The friendships that are life-giving are our streams, but God is the ocean. The blessed and, and the only sovereign. The king who, who reigns supreme. He says he's the king of kings and, and the Lord of lords. You know, we, we, we read this, and listen, if you're, if you're studying this, I do, this happens to me all the time, and you're dry, and, and you, your, your heart is not in it, you stop and you say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give me the joy of Jesus. Just, just stop. We all have dry periods. And say, God, show me your greatness. Give, give me, let me see the greatness of Christ. He says, who, who is immortal. Think about it. There's never a time when God was not God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been in the happy land of the Trinity, in loving relationship, who alone has immortality, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or, or can see because of sin. But a day is coming. See, First Peter talks about seeing God, and it says this, First Peter 1, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Inexpressible and filled with glory. You, you, we see very dimly. But a day is coming. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Oh, the vision of God and his triune glory. We will see him. Paul says, that, 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 day, that day's coming. You, you glory in that. And so there, therefore, to God be our honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. I saw a powerful movie this week. It's called The Judge. It's rated R because of profanity, so know that. But it's about um, reconciliation between a father and a son. 
The judge is portrayed by my almost favorite actor, Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall is incredibly gifted. Not as much as Denzel, okay? So there's a drop-off there, but Denzel's my man, Robert Duvall is pretty close, and then Sly's still lonely down here, you know, okay? So we got Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall is the judge in a small town in Indiana. His son, played by Robert Downey Jr., who did a magnificent job, uh, has left home, has gone to Chicago, never comes home, um, hasn't spoken to his parents basically in years. He's a very successful lawyer in Chicago, killing it financially, who's miserable. His mama dies. He goes back to small town Indiana to go to the funeral. He's with his, to be with his older brother and his younger brother who has uh, some mental issues. So he's there, and as he's there, his father's involved in something. He ends up defending his father in, in a trial. And as the trial unfolds, he finds out his father has inoperable cancer. And so late in the movie, the father and the son who had this ongoing acrimonious hate field and then the embrace relationship. He's, the son is talking to the father about it. He says, well, Dad, in a very halting way, what happens? What happens when, he says, when I die? He says, yeah. He said, are you asking me, son, if I believe in God? He said, yeah. He said, well, I'm 74 and I have four-stage cancer. What other choice do I have? I went, oh. In other words, I've, I've got to deal with this. I, I mean, I, I can't. I thought, oh, how far from that is running to the Savior who says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. To see the grandeur and the beauty of God in the face of Christ. And then I thought about this little book. And as this book unfolds, King Tyrion fights the forces of evil. He's longing to see Aslan. And they fight, and they are fighting against incredible odds. And this is toward the end of the book. A brightness flashed behind them, and the sweet air grew suddenly even sweeter. And they all turned. And King Tyrion turned last because he was afraid. And there stood his heart's desire, huge and real, the golden lion, Aslan himself. And already the others were kneeling in a circle round his forepaws and burying their hands and faces in his mane as he stooped his great head to touch them with his tongue. Then he fixed his eyes upon King Tyrion, and Tyrion came near, trembling, and flung himself at the lion's feet. And the lion kissed him and said, Well done, last of the kings of Narnia, who stood firm at the darkest hour. I thought, Oh, man. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, steward of your calling under the banner of Jesus. See, I, I want joy for us. I want usefulness for us. And it comes in progressively knowing the character of our great God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. Thank you for this incredible testimony of, of, of fighting the good fight, where Paul says that we should be people who understand a great day is coming and we should live understanding that you're the 
blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, the one who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see, the one to whom belongs eternal dominion and honor forever and ever. And Lord, I thank you that because of the greatness of Christ in our lives, one day we will see you in glory. And right now, we see you by faith, and I pray as we do that, you'll fill us with inexpressible joy that is shot full of glory. So I praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.